0: Well, it is time to wish our listeners who are celebrating a birthday today on this October 25th a very happy birthday. We have Betty Legler from Mason City, Gretchen McKean from Johnston, Janice Price from Adele, Clarence English from Des Moines, and Michelle Hupp from Webster City. All of us here at Iris would like to wish all of you a very happy birthday. And this is a reminder that you're listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service. If you're hearing us on your television on Iowa PBS and you're not a registered IRIS user, please give us a call at 515 243 6833 so we can get you on our list. We need to know who is listening in order to keep our services free. And now here's Barm with today's obituaries.
1: Thank you, Dennis. Rachel Louise Myers of Ankeny, age 86, passed away on October 22nd. Mass of Christian Burial will be held at 11 a.m. on Friday, October 27th at All Saints Catholic Church in Des Moines. The rosary will be recited at 10.15 a.m., followed by visitation from 10.30 to 11. She will be laid to rest at Glendale Cemetery. Rachel is survived by her daughters, Janice Kessler and Susan Matheny, her sister, Betty Federis, along with seven grandchildren, 11 great-grandchildren, and a great-great-grandson. The full obituary can be seen online at AnkenyMemorial.com. Madeline Rose Clancy Clay, age 87, was born March 15, 1936, and died on October 16, 2023. side service and burial will be at 11 a.m. on October twenty eighth at Elm Grove Cemetery in Des Moines. Memorial service for Judith Murta Thorison, 88, of Okoboji, formerly of Algona, will be held at the First Congregational United Church of Christ in Algona on October 28th at 2 p.m. A reception with a family present will be held following the service at the UCC Fellowship Hall. A celebration of life for Judy will be held in the Iowa Great Lakes in June of 2024. In lieu of flowers, memorials may be made in Judy's name to the Friends of Iowa Lakeside Laboratory and the Algona School Foundation. Barbara Ann Kennedy Case, 90, of Greenwood Village, Colorado, most recently of Cherry Hills Assisted Living and Memory Care, died in her sleep on September 4th. She was born December 18, 1932, and raised in Indianola, Iowa, where she graduated from Simpson College with a bachelor's degree in childhood education. She met her husband of 57 years, Lyle, while at Simpson. She was a lifelong member of the Tri-Delta sorority, starting at Simpson. She is survived by her three children, Stephen Case of New Canaan, Connecticut, Jeffrey Case of West Des Moines, and Kimberly Malik of Greenwood Village, Colorado as well as nine grandchildren and one great-granddaughter. Barbara worked as an elementary teacher in Iowa City, while her husband Lyle, who predeceased her in 2012, attended graduate school at the University of Iowa. She worked as a substitute teacher and raised her three children, as Lyle climbed the corporate ladder as an exploration geologist at Texaco. She managed family moves to Kansas, Oklahoma, Mississippi, Louisiana, Connecticut, Texas, and ultimately South Denver. When the family settled in green oaks in 1977. barbara was an active part of the green oaks community for many years and also a strong supporter of women's advancement through her involvement with peo her support of her family was unconditional it was most clearly demonstrated during her 15 years of daily commitment to caring for lyle after a serious car accident left him a quadriplegic Barbara loved to cook. Her Iowa-inspired dinners, her scalloped potatoes, and her Christmas cookies were loved by everyone who had the pleasure of enjoying them. She loved her home and enjoyed decorating. There were always beautiful flowers and candy dishes full of treats for her grandchildren. Her smile, her sense of humor, and her unwavering love for her family and friends were missed. A memorial service will be held at 10.30 a.m. Saturday, October 28th at Trinity United Presbyterian Church. 200 south howard in indianola she will have her final resting place next to lyle in the indianola io of cemetery a celebration of life to honor barbara will be held in greenwood village at her daughter kim's home in green oaks during december In lieu of flowers, the family requests donations in Lyle and Barbara's name to Trinity United Presbyterian Church, the Craig Hospital Foundation at 3425 South Clarkson Clarkson Street in Englewood, Colorado, or to the Simpson Fund of Simpson College. Please share your memories of Barbara with her family by signing the guest book or memory card at overtonfunerals.com. And Jack Otto Kramer, 85 died October 20th. Visitation will be held from 5 to 7 p.m. on Monday, October 30th at Isles Westover Chapel. Funeral services will be at 12 p.m. noon, Tuesday, October 31st at the chapel. Interment will follow at 2 p.m. at the Iowa Veterans Cemetery near Van Meter. Jack was born May 11th in Clemmy, Iowa and graduated from Garner High School, class of 1957. He entered the U.S. Navy after high school and was honored to serve six years on the USS Ranville. After serving, he married Judy, and they had just celebrated 60 years of marriage in September. They traveled the world with many trips. Judy yearned from her business and made some beautiful memories. They lived in Des Moines, where they lived for over 50 years before moving to Johnston. Jack worked at Owen Chris Body Shop for many years and had his own auto repair business, JOK Auto. Jack of all trades was an appropriate title. His passion and incredible talent was restoring and painting show cars. He earned several car show awards. He could fix anything car related and always made sure his grandkids had vehicles. He could also build anything and remodeled several homes. Jack had a generous heart and was always willing to lend a hand to family, friend, and neighbors. Jack was survived by his wife, Judy Kramer of Johnston, daughter, Anne Heiler of Ankeny, Son, Dan Kramer of Grimes, Sister Judy Smith of Mission, Texas, Diane White of Clear Lake, and Tammy Ellison of Maple Plain, five grandsons, two great-grandchildren, and many nieces, nephews, and cousins. He was preceded in death by his parents, Harlene and Art Kramer, and a sister, Sharon Smith of Belmont. Memorial contributions in memory of Jack may be made to a veteran organization of the Donors' Choice. Online condolences are welcome at IELTScares.com.
0: That concludes our obituaries for today. Turning back now to national news, Cohen says numbers Trump gave for assets were arbitrary. Michael Cohen, the former personal lawyer and fixer for Donald Trump, testified Tuesday at Trump's New York civil fraud trial about boosting the company's assets with, quote, whatever number Trump told us, end quote. I was, uh, I was tasked by Mr. Trump to increase the total assets based upon a number that he arbitrarily elected, he said. Cohen, who previously has accused his client under oath of falsifying property values in his real estate empire, testified that he and former Trump Organization Finance Chief Allen Weiselberg worked to reverse engineer the various different asset classes, increase those assets in order to achieve a number that Mr. Trump had tasked us. Asked what that number was, Cohen replied, "Whatever number Trump told us to chew." To, told us to. Cohen looked away from his former employer, keeping his eyes on state lawyer Colleen Faraday. As Cohen testified about his career and convictions, Trump whispered to his lawyers. At other points, the former president hunched forward in his seat or leaned back with crossed arms. State Supreme Court Justice Arthur N. Gorin, who already ruled Trump committed fraud for years, is presiding over the trial to determine penalties for Trump and his business. N. Gorin canceled Trump's business certificates, but an appeals court put the impact of that decision on hold while the case is argued. New York Attorney General Letitia James is seeking $250 million. One of Van findings was that Trump valued rent-controlled apartments at Trump Park Avenue, where Cohen lives, at millions of dollars more than their assessed value because of their potential to eventually be sold as market rent units. Trump called the decision ridiculous and untrue, and his lawyers have vowed to appeal the ruling. Cohen earlier said it was the first time he'd seen Trump in person in five years. This is not about Donald Trump versus Michael Cohen or Michael Cohen versus Donald Trump, he said as he arrived at the courthouse. This is about accountability, plain and simple. Trump noted as he headed into court that Cohen served prison time after pleading guilty to tax evasion, lying to Congress, and campaign finance violations. Quote, He's a proven liar, Trump told reporters. I think you'll see that for yourself. Cohen told reporters he committed crimes at Trump's direction. I did it at the direction of and in concert with and for the benefit of Donald J. Trump, Cohen said. In August of 2018, Cohen pleaded guilty in federal court to concealing more than $4 million in personal income from the IRS, making false statements about a home equity loan, and causing $280,000 in payments to be made to silence two women who otherwise planned to speak publicly about their alleged affairs with a presidential candidate thereby intending to influence the 2016 presidential election, according to court records. The hush money payments are at the heart of Manhattan District Attorney Elvin Bragg's criminal case against Trump for allegedly falsifying business records to repay Cohen. Cohen also pleaded guilty in November of 2018 to lying to Congress about a Trump project in Moscow. He was sentenced to three years in prison, but served about half the term in home detention because of the COVID-19 pandemic.
1: Ellis pleads guilty in Georgia election case. Jenna Ellis, a co-defendant with Donald Trump in the Georgia election conspiracy case, became the fourth person to plead guilty Tuesday in the case alleging attempted interference in the 2020 election. Ellis, whom Trump called part of his truly great team of private lawyers in November 2020, travel the country promoting baseless claims of election fraud, holding news conferences, and meeting with state lawmakers. (coughs) She was initially charged as part of the broader racketeering conspiracy with asking Georgia state lawmakers to violate their oaths of office by appointing fake presidential electors to support Trump, despite him losing the state to President Joe Biden. Speaking inside an Atlanta courtroom, Ellis portrayed herself as an inexperienced attorney who had fallen for Trump's narrative. Ellis pleaded guilty to a felony, aiding and abetting false statement and writings. She agreed to five years of probation and agreed to pay $5,000 of restitution. Her agreement falls under George's First Offender Act, which means the conviction will be wiped off her record if she completes the probation period. Ella said she relied on other lawyers with more experience to provide true and reliable information while challenging results of the 2020 election. She said she didn't check whether allegations others made were true. She apologized to the people of Georgia. Quote, I believe in and I value election integrity, Ella said tearfully, reading a statement. If I knew then what I know now, I would have declined to represent Donald Trump in these post-election challenges. I look back on this whole experience with deep remorse. Fulton County Superior Judge Scott McAfee thanked her for the statement. All too often, I don't get to hear the perspective of those accused in these cases, so that is appreciated, McAfee said. Ellis appeared at a meeting on December 3, 2020, before a Georgia Senate Judiciary Subcommittee with Trump campaign lawyers Rudy Giuliani and Ray Smith two co-defendants in the case, according to Dasha Young, executive director, pardon me, executive district attorney in Fulton County. Giuliani and Smith made false statements, including that that 2,506 felons voted illegally, 66,248 underage people illegally registered to vote, 2,423 people voted who were not listed as registered to vote, and 10,315 dead people voted, Young said. But state investigations found no widespread fraud. The false statements were made with reckless disregard of truth and with conspicuous purpose to avoid learning the truth, Young said. Giuliani and Smith have pleaded not guilty. Legal experts said the co-defendants reaching plea agreements could provide powerful testimony during trials because they met with key players in the alleged racketeering conspiracy that sought to keep Trump in power. Alyssa Farrah Griffin, former Trump White House communications director, said in a post on X that Ellis's play shows the election protests were all a lie and the public was deceived. Ellis is one of 19 co-defendants charged in the case, which alleged a broad racketeering conspiracy. The indictment described a conspiracy including the recruitment of fake presidential electors to vote for Trump, lying about election results to state officials and in court records, and soliciting public officials to violate their oaths of office. Sidney Powell, who had claimed widespread election fraud, pleaded guilty last Thursday to one count of conspiracy to commit theft and five counts of conspiracy to commit intentional interference with performance of election duties. Powell agreed to testify in future trials in exchange for serving six years of probation, a $6,000 fine, and paying restitution of $2,700. Kenneth Chesborough, another lawyer who developed the scheme to recruit fake presidential electors for Trump, pleaded guilty Friday. Another co-defendant, bail bondsman Scott Hall, pleaded guilty last month to five misdemeanors and also agreed to testify against others. Ellis was already censured by the Colorado Bar for making ten false statements about the election. The indictment described Ellis acting as part of the conspiracy. On November 19, 2020, Ellis attended a news conference at the Republican National Committee with co-defendants Powell and Giuliani making false claims about election fraud. On November 25, 2020, Ellis joined Giuliani meeting with Pennsylvania lawmakers to encourage them to appoint fake presidential electors supporting Trump. Ellis and Giuliani made calls to Pennsylvania lawmakers the next two days. November 30th and December 1st, 2020, Ellis and Giuliani met with Arizona lawmakers to encourage them to appoint fake electors. On December 3rd, 2020, Ellis joined Giuliani and other co-defendants in asking Georgia lawmakers to violate their oaths of office by appointing fake electors. And on December 31, 2020, and January 5, 2021, Ellis wrote memos for Trump analyzing how then-Vice President Mike Pence, in his role as President of the Senate, could reject electors from six contested states when Congress counted votes on January 6, 2021. Pence refused to participate.
0: From Washington, U.S. rushes arms and advisors to Middle East, Israel preparing ground assault in urban areas. The Pentagon has sent military advisors, including Marine Corps generals versed in urban warfare, to Israel to aid in its war planning and is speeding multiple sophisticated air defense systems to the Middle East, days ahead of an anticipated ground assault in Gaza. One of the officers leading the assistance is Marine Corps Lieutenant General James Glynn, who previously helped lead Special Operations Forces against the Islamic State and served in Fallujah, Iraq, during some of the most heated urban combat there, according to a U.S. official who was not authorized to discuss Glynn's role and spoke on the condition of anonymity. Glynn will also be advising on how to mitigate civilian casualties in urban warfare, the official said. Israel is preparing a large-scale ground operation in an environment in which Hamas militants have had years to prepare tunnel networks and set traps throughout the northern Gaza's defense urban blocks. Glynn and other military officers who are advising Israel have experience that is appropriate to the sorts of operations that Israel is conducting. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby said Monday, The advisors will not be engaged in the fighting, the unidentified U.S. official said. The military team is one of many fast-moving pieces the Pentagon is getting in place to try and prevent the already intense conflict between Israel and Hamas from becoming a wider war. It also is trying to protect U.S. personnel who, in the last few days, have come under repeated attacks that the Pentagon has said were likely endorsed by Iran. Kirby said Iran was in some cases actively facilitating these attacks and spurring on others who may want to exploit the conflict for their own good, or for that of Iran. We know that Iran's goal is to maintain some level of deniability here, but we're not going to allow them to do that. The White House said President Joe Biden spoke with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu on Monday to update him on U.S. support for Israel and ongoing efforts at a regional deterrence to include new U.S. military deployments. On Monday, the U.S. military garrison at Antanf, Syria, came under attack again, this time by two drones. The drones were shot down and no injuries were reported. It was the latest episode of more than a half dozen times in the last week that U.S. military locations in the Middle East had come under rocket or drone attack since a deadly blast at a Gaza hospital. Last Thursday, the destroyer USS Kearney shot down four land-attack cruise missiles launched from Yemen that the Pentagon has said were potentially headed toward Israel. In response, over the weekend, the Pentagon announced it was sending multiple Patriot Missile Defense System battalions and a terminal high-altitude area defense system to the Middle East, as well as repositioning the Eisenhower Strike Group to the U.S. Central Command Area of Responsibility. The ship had previously been en route to the eastern Mediterranean. The shift means that the Navy will have a carrier strike group off the shore of Israel, Ford carrier strike group, and another, the Eisenhower, potentially maneuvered to defend U.S. forces and Israel from the Red Sea or the Gulf of Oman. Oman, excuse me. We're going to continue to do what we need to do to protect and safeguard our forces and take all necessary measures, said Brigadier General Pat Ryder, Pentagon Press Secretary. No one wants to see a wider regional conflict, but we will not hesitate to protect our forces. The U.S. has also advised Israeli officials to consider a delay in any ground assault, saying it would give more time to allow the U.S. to work with its regional partners to release more hostages, according to a U.S. official familiar with the Biden administration's thinking on the matter. The official who requested anonymity to discuss the private discussion said it was unclear how much the argument will move the needle on Israeli thinking. The official noted that with the help of Qatar mediating the Hamas, the U.S. was able to win the release of two captive, Judith and Natalie Reynon. The process that led to their release, just two of more than 200 people in Israel who were taken hostage in the October 7th attacks, started soon after the Hamas operation. The official noted arranging for the release of the Ronins Ra- took longer to come together than many people realized. Asked during a brief exchange with the reporters at the White House on Monday if the U.S. would be supportive of a ceasefire for hostages deal, Biden replied, quote, we should have those hostages released, then we can talk. During his phone call with Netanyahu, Net- Net- Biden also affirmed his commitment to ongoing efforts to secure the release of all the remaining hostages taken by Hamas, including Americans, and to provide for safe passage for U.S. citizens and other civilians in Gaza, the White House said. The International Committee of the Red Cross said money that Hamas had released two more hostages. They were identified by Israeli media as Yaakovan Lischwitz and Narit Cooper of the Israeli Kibbutz of Near Oz. Glenn's assignment to Israel was first reported by Axios.
1: And we'll introduce the eight candidates for the Johnston School Board. Jason Arnold is 46 years old and grew up in Denison. His current home is Urbandale. Education, Bachelor of Science in Computer Science from Drake University, Political Experience, unsuccessfully ran for school board in 2019 and currently sit on the District School Improvement Advisory Committee, as well as a parent helper for a ms mock trial. Previously, been on the board of the Timber Ridge Elementary PTO for a total of six years, two as secretary, two as vice president, and two as president. He and his wife run the Spring Book Fair at Timber Ridge Elementary for about eight years. Been a multi-year parent helper and coach for a first Lego League team. Sunita Mangra-Dutcher, the incumbent, is 50 years old and grew up in Des Moines. The current home is Johnston. Education, Associate of Arts degree from Des Moines Area Community College, Bachelor of Science in Psychology. Political experience, Johnston School Board, 2019 to the present. Josh Nelson, age 36, grew up in Pleasant Hill. Current home is Urbandale. Education, associate of applied science degree in automotive and collision technologies. Political experience, no political experience. Volunteer, fed, as a volunteer, fed homeless for two years at a previous church, and 19 years experience with a special needs community. Charles Steele is 38 years old and grew up in central Iowa. Current home is Urbandale. Education, blessed to have graduated from a small school in central Iowa, then joined the workforce directly after high school. Political parents experience have never held an elected office. In his second year as the District School Improvement Advisory Committee for Social, Emotional, Behavioral and Mental Health. Lori Styles is 60 years old and grew up on a dairy farm in northeast Wisconsin. Current form is Holmes Johnson. Education, Baldur's High School, valedictorian. Post-secondary schools in Madison, Wisconsin for radiologic technology and diagnostic ultrasound in four specialties, abdominal, OBGYN, adult cardiac, and vascular. Political experience, no other elected offices have been sought or held. Michelle Veach is 47 years old and grew up in Pleasant Hill. Her current home is in Johnston. Education, she's an East High graduate, Bachelor of Science in Business Management from the University of Wisconsin in River Falls. Political experience, first time candidate, had volunteered for eight years at Timber Ridge Elementary, her children's elementary school, helping teachers working in the library and on the PTO. And Leah Williams, is 47 years old and grew up in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Her current home is Johnston. Education, North Carolina Agricultural and Technical State University. Political experience, unsuccessfully ran for school board in 2021, and currently sits on the School Improvement Advisory Committee.
0: Now we'll take a look at some shorts from our 50 states, from Alaska, from Sitka. A dog has returned home after being lost for 65 days, KCAW reports, in what her owner called quite a miracle. Thirteen-year-old golden retriever Stella was finally found after being scared by fireworks in July and bolting into the woods, according to the news outlet. From Arizona, from Yuma, two U.S. Border Patrol agents were in critical condition after a pickup truck crashed into an immigration checkpoint on Saturday. The two agents were injured and taken to the hospital before being flown to Phoenix for advanced care, according to the U.S. Customs and Border Protection. From Pine Bluff, Arkansas, police have taken two people into custody in connection with a shooting that left one person dead and three others wounded. Pine Bluff police said an officer called to a convenience store early Sunday and found a large crowd in the parking lot with multiple people firing weapons. Los Angeles, California. Federal prosecutors are seeking justice for 34 people killed in a fire aboard a scuba dive boat called the Conception in 2019. The trial against Captain Jerry Bolin began Tuesday with jury selection. From Westport, Connecticut, the body of one of two boaters who went missing in the on, in the Long Island Sound has been recovered. Police said the remains of Juan Gabriel Valle Panetta were found by Bridgeport Fire Department staffers. Panetta. ...was one of five people who were on a small fishing boat that sank Sunday. From Macon, Georgia, investigators say they found a murder suspect... ...who had been missing more than seven months while looking for four men who escaped from jail. Bibb County Sheriff David Davis said the authorities located the suspect based on a tip about the escapes. Springfield, Illinois, a man, was sentenced to over a year in prison for his role in a COVID-19 relief fraud scheme in which he received over $40,000 in federal relief funds. Philip Lovelace, Jr., 33, was sentenced to 20 months in prison on wire fraud charges. From Iowa, from Des Moines, a state licensing board is not disclosing the alleged wrongdoing that prompted a chiropractor with a history of sex offenses to surrender his license. From Columbia, Missouri, A $1.2 million grant from the Army will be used by researchers at the University of Missouri to develop a portable topical antibiotic delivery device for soldiers wounded in combat. In Billings, Montana, a man has been sentenced to 18 months in federal prison for making repeated racist phone calls to a church. Joshua Leon Heiston was sentenced on Friday for making harassing telephone calls. Well... For the last 90 minutes, your readers have been Barb Deheck and Dennis May. And it's been our pleasure to read for you. And now we'll take a short break to allow our next readers to get into place.
2: Welcome back. Your new readers are Patty Daniels and Scott Splayback. We will now continue with articles from the Des Moines Register and USA Today. And here's Patty with our next article.
3: This is the first opinion written for us by Dr. Charita L. Rogue. She's an opinion contributor. When Michigan writers overwhelmingly passed Proposal 3 last year, enshrining the right to abortion in the state constitution, I felt incredible relief. However, as a physician who provides comprehensive reproductive health care, including pregnancy and abortion care, I knew my work as an advocate for my patients was far from over. That is why I am urging the Michigan legislature to pass the Reproductive Health Act, that's known in initials as RHA, which will repeal old anti-abortion laws designed to restrict patient access to care. These laws were enacted under the guise of improving patient safety. The truth is that abortion care is extremely safe. What is actually dangerous uh, are the laws restricting access that the RHA will repeal. Recently, a physician who specializes in high-risk obstetrics referred a patient to me with heart failure As soon as they discovered she was pregnant, her cardiologist referred her to the obstetric specialist who estimated a one in four chance that she would die if the pregnancy continued. Not wanting to risk her life or leave her young children without a mother, she decided to have an abortion. By the time she finally got to me, she was 12 weeks pregnant. Due to her high-risk health status, we expedited her care and scheduled her appointment for just a couple of days later. However, there were barriers she didn't expect. In Michigan, patients are legally required to physically print out a form at least 24 hours before their appointment, but she didn't have access to a printer. That led to her appointment being rescheduled. Between the delay and her cardiac status, it was soon evident that she needed a higher level of care in a hospital setting. This meant that the cost would be much higher, over $10,000, and once Michigan law prohibited her insurance from covering abortion care, she anticipated that she would have to incur significant medical debt. In the end, she suffered a nearly five-week delay from when she was supposed to have the procedure to when it was finally completed. The delay was entirely unnecessary and entirely caused by the unconstitutional laws targeting abortion that are still in effect in Michigan, the 24-hour mandated delay in care, the required consent form, the restrictions on insurance coverage, just to name a few, Theoretically, all patients have a constitutional right to reproductive freedom, but until we pass the RHA and and remove those cruel and unnecessary laws, it will instead remain a privilege only for those with the means to overcome those obstacles. And the right will remain are out of reach for the far too many. We need to stop siloing, criminalizing, and stigmatizing abortion care and treating it differently than all other health care. Now is the time for the legislature to put people ahead of politics and pass the Reproductive Health Act in full. Michiganders are counting on you. And Dr. Charita Roque is an assistant professor in obstetrics and gynecology at Western Michigan University. Uh, the Homer Stryker M.D. School of Medicine. This column was first published in the the Detroit Free Press.
2: Thank you, Patty. Our next opinion from the USA Today section is entitled, Maybe Governor Abbott Should Fence Off All of Texas. This is written by Rex Hupke of USA Today. I wish I loved anything as much as Republican Texas Governor Greg Abbott loves razor-sharp, flesh-ripping coils of concertina wire. Having made national headlines and aroused the more sadistic wing of his party's voting base by stretching dangerous buoys and razor wire along the Rio Grande, the thirsty-to-get-on-Fox-News governor has now had the Texas National Guard stretch miles of concertina wire along the state's border with New Mexico. That's right, Abbott is directly violating the Texas state motto, friendship, by fencing off a neighboring state. Abbott keeps adding to his cruel to immigrants resume. In a terse statement, the Texas Military Department wrote, quote, We are now fortifying the border between Texas and New Mexico to block migrants. End quote. New Mexican migrants? Tourists going from Las Cruces to El Paso? No. The supposed intent of this decidedly dangerous fencing is to keep migrants who cross the Mexican border into New Mexico from making their way to Texas. Of course, the actual intent has nothing to do with seriously addressing the issue of illegal immigration, a problem no border state governor or presidential administration has ever been able to solve. It's a way for Abbott to pretend he's tough on immigration while pilloring President Joe Biden's border policies, which have focused more on addressing root causes than cruel stunts. It's another thing Abbott can add to his nobody is crueler to migrants than old Greg vision board. In a joint statement, Texas Democratic Party Chair Gilberto Hinojosa said and, or excuse me, and Democratic Party of New, or- New Mexico Chair Jessica Velazquez wrote, quote, this is the latest Operation Lone Star stunt funded by the working Texas families tax dollar that will result in environmental damage, community division, and injuries of vulnerable migrants. It's clear that Governor Abbott has no plans on actually addressing our broken immigration system head on, end quote. How dare those Democratic leaders accuse the Texas governor of something so accurate? Abbott just wants to act tough on migrants and get on Fox News. The statement continued quote, New Mexico has some of the most humane, people oriented immigration laws in the country. New Mexico Democratic leaders believe that everyone who comes to our country in pursuit of a better life, as an asylum seeker or otherwise, deserves just and humane treatment and the laws of New Mexico reflect those values. Greg Abbott knows that New Mexican neighbors are not the enemy, but is working overtime to gain Fox News airtime, Again, highlighting Abbott's transparent antic while simultaneously suggesting that hum- human beings treat other human beings with compassion is a classic democratic maneuver. Shame on those party chairs for so rudely demanding a man who is using taxpayer money to get Fox News host Sean Hannity to be his best pal. Why just stop at the border with New Mexico? The truth is there's a reasonable way that Abbott's pointy pointy fence enthusiasm can be leveraged to make America a better place. As long as the governor has started constructing a barrier heading north into the United States, he might as well continue, ideally moving it 20 or so miles up to around Anthony, Texas, and then hanging a sharp right, heading east and following the Texas-New Mexico border for a couple hundred miles until he hits New Mexico's Lee County. There, he would want the National Guard to run the fence northward a few hundred or so miles until he hits the spot marked the northwestern corner of Texas. Now, I know this is already sounding like a lot of fence, but the truth is you just never know where a migrant might try to slip into the Lone Star State, or more important, where Abbott or one of his supporters might try to slip out of Texas to infiltrate what I like to call the Greater Forty Seven. America's non-Texas contiguous states. The greater 47 does not include Alaska and Hawaii, though they are also great. Operation Lone Star Encapsulation. Having already stretched that much fencing, Abbott might as well continue to protect his state from borders, excuse me, from possible migrant invasion via Texas's borders with Oklahoma, Arkansas, and Louisiana. This effort, which I've dubbed Operation Lone Star Encapsulation, will effectively seal off the roughly 4,000-mile perimeter of the state, keeping migrants out and protecting other Americans from dangerous Texas policies, including Abbott's six-week abortion ban, the governor's permit-free gun-carrying law, His ban on transgender care for minors, his law shuttering all diversity, equity, and inclusion offices at state colleges and universities, the state's relentless book bans, and the fact that Elon Musk lives there. While I would technically prefer it if the governor would direct time and resources toward humane and sensible border solutions, that seems unlikely. So second best is probably if he just fences the whole darn state off. It won't stop the flow of migrants, as barriers never do, but it might at least help the rest of us in the greater 47 avoid exposure to whatever the heck Abbott is up to down there. And you can follow USA Today columnist Rex Hupke on X, formerly known as Twitter. His handle is at Rex Hupke, H-U-P-P-K-E. And you can also follow him on Facebook at uh, Facebook.com slash Rex is a jerk. Patty?
3: Thank you. We'll start with the sports on TV. Wednesday, October 25th, all times Eastern. College football, 7 p.m. CBSSN, Jacksonville State at FLU, 8 p.m. ESPN2. Oh, excuse me. Is that a two or a Z? That's a two. ESPN2. UTEP at Sam Houston State, College Golf, 9 a.m., St. Andrews Links Collegiate, final round, old course at St. Andrews Golf Links, St. Andrews, Scotland, College Volleyball Women's, 6 p.m., BTN Northwestern at Ohio State, 7 p.m., ACCN North Carolina at Duke, 8 p.m., BTN, um, Indiana at Illinois, SECN, Tennessee at Missouri, golf, 10 p.m., LPGA Tour, the Maybank Championship, first round, Kuala Lumpur Golf and Country Club, Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, 2 a.m., Thursday, ESPN 2 Asia-Pacific Amateur Championship First Round Royal Melbourne Golf Course Melbourne, Alaska Excuse me, Australia NBA Basketball 7.15 p.m. ESPN Boston at New York 8.35 p.m. ESPN Dallas at San Antonio NHL Hockey 7.30 p.m. TNT, Washington at New Jersey. Soccer, men's, 2.55 p.m. And CBSSN UEFA Championships League Group Stage. Atletico Madrid at Celtic Group E. 11 p.m., PSI Liga MX, Atletico San Luis at Juarez. Tennis, 3 a.m. Tennis, WTA, Elite Trophy Zuhai Round Robin Vienna ATP Basai ATP Early Round 6 a.m. Tennis WTA Elite Trophy Zuhai Round Robin Vienna ATP Basia uh, Basai I'm sorry uh, ATP Early Round 1 a.m. on Thursday Tennis with Elite trophy, trophy, zoo, high, round, robin.
2: Thank you. And other sports news. Let's go with the Iowa State article. It's written by Randy Peterson, and it's entitled, Iowa State has gone from 64-point loss to favorite. Go back 10 years, revisit the 2013 Iowa State Baylor football game for a real sense of how far the program Matt Campbell runs so well has progressed. Specifically, it's gone from a 33-point underdog that season to a road favorite when the Cyclones play in Waco on Saturday. That's a 34-point swing in the betting line since Iowa State was humiliated 71-7 in the year 2013. Art Bryles' team had 714 yards and 32 first downs. The Cyclones' Kirby Vanderkamp's 10 punts accounted for 431 yards, 257 more than Iowa State's total offense. And you wonder how far Iowa State football has come in the past decade, including the the past seven-plus seasons under Campbell. Sure, there have been some bumps over the average 100 over the 105 games since what possibly was the worst loss in Cyclone football history. That's bound to happen, but there's also been highs, like playing in the 2020 Big 12 Conference Championship game, defeating Oregon in that... Gotta find the page, sorry. That season's Fiesta Bowl and the shocking 2017 upset at third-ranked Oklahoma. Quote, We've had some good times and some not-so-good times, but I believe that every time we've gone out, we've believed we have an opportunity to win the football game, end quote, Campbell said during his weekly Tuesday press conference. He goes on to say, that's the biggest thing that's changed over the course of seven or eight years. There's a belief that you can and have the ability to win football games, end quote. The program has battled back after faltering to 4-8 and last season and a humiliating loss at Ohio a month ago. Quote, after that game, we all looked at each other in the face and said, we're better than this, quarterback Rocco Becht said Tuesday. These Cyclones are tied for second place in the conference. They're preparing to face a Baylor team that 10 years ago beat them so badly, then ISU coach Paul Rhodes called it a fiasco. Quote, they know they just got whipped, Rhodes said of his guys after the game. I know I just got whipped. I can't sulk. I can't pout. I have to figure out how to do my job better as they work to do their job better. That's what a team does, and that's what we'll set out to do. End quote. A decade later, early betting lines favor the Cyclones by a point or two. That's partly because of Iowa State's winning three of the past four games since losing at Ohio, and partly because the Bears haven't played like Baylor teams of the past. Quote, there's been a global change in mindset of we can be successful here. and quote. Campbell said, he goes on to say, how to be successful here is not easy. But the time, the effort, and the commitment of everybody that's involved in the program believe in the notion you can have success here at Iowa State. The Cyclones are playing their best football of the season at a time when that counts the most. With a record of 3-1 in the Big 12 and 4-3 overall, Campbell's team needs two more wins over the next five games to return to the postseason for the fifth time in the past six seasons. If it happens, it's because of how this team's leaders, coaches included, rallied their teams the past four games, how they responded to adversity, which in this situation was a 10-7 to loss against a MAC team, not a 64-pointer against a Power 5 opponent. Quote, Coach Campbell embraces his role as an educator far more than any college football coach I have ever been around. End quote. Jamie Pollard said... He has not wavered one time from his approach of building a player-driven program that is committed to using the sport of football to help prepare a young men for the challenges they will face the rest of their lives. He truly believes his role is much greater than just trying to win games. His overall approach has been a perfect match for our program, and as a result, he has gotten far better results than any Iowa State football coach before him." End quote. The Cyclones have won 34 Big 12 games since the year 2017, tied for third most in the league during that span. That includes, don't forget, going 1-8 in the Big 12 last season. Their confidence is high, something Jeff Woody, who played in that 71-7 nightmare a decade ago, notices while watching his alma mater these days. Quote, it's their belief that there's no game they go into where they look at it as an uphill battle, end quote, Woody told me. He goes on to say, I never thought we'd lose any game back when I played, but I looked at games like we'd have to play harder to win. Now the players look at it like they just play their own game. If they just play their own game, they'll win, end quote. That 2013 game was as helpless as I've ever felt in sports. That's certainly not the case now for Campbell's program.
3: Thank you. Campbell sees similarities between Iowa State and Baylor, and Alyssa Hertel wrote this for us. Iowa State football, 4-3, sits at number 5 in the Big 12 standings coming off the bye week with consecutive conference wins against TCU and Cincinnati to give the Cyclones a 3-1 record in league play. This weekend, ISU will look to improve its conference record uh, to 4-1 for just the third time in school history, 2017 and 2020, Baylor 3422 two, Big 12 may be the perfect opponent to help Iowa State accomplish these goals it could all come down to defense though Iowa State's defense is fourth in the Big 12 holding opponents to an average of 26 points per game the cyclones are also the only team in the league to register a safety this season baylor's defense sits in second last above only houston allowing 30 ppg Both programs have struggled at times on offense, but the Bears have a slight advantage in season-long stats. Uh, Baylor's unit averages 23.1 points per game, Iowa State 23. Here is what Cyclones coach Matt Campbell said during Tuesday's media availability. Iowa State coach doesn't believe that Baylor is as bad as its record shows and Campbell shared that the Bears were a micro a, mi, a mirror excuse me a mirror image of the Cyclones at this point in the season. Both teams have dealt with roster turnover and are playing with younger groups and Campbell saw how Baylor beat Cincinnati on Saturday as it came out of its own bye week. They're beginning to have a great identity, Campbell said. I just feel like as a football team in general, the identity is really starting to evolve and form. Just finding out who their guys are and what they can do and then putting them in the best position to be successful. Campbell credited Baylor quarterback Blake Shapin, who returned from injury and, according to Campbell, has played exceptional football over his last four quarters. He noted that the Bears' receiver room, like Iowa State, lost a lot of contributors and defensive Baylor has a veteran group. Last year's loss to Baylor was a close one, 31-24. But games in this ser- series, in which the Bears hold the 12-9 overall advantage, haven't always been decided by one score. Ten years ago, Baylor defeated Iowa State 71-7 to in Texas. In the years since Campbell took over, the scores have been different. The last four matchups were decided by seven points or less. Since 2016, Campbell's full f- First full season as head coach, the margin of victory or defeat against Baylor has never been more than 14 points. Iowa State has never lost by more than a touchdown, with Campbell in charge. There's been a global change of, we can be successful here, Campbell said. How to be successful here is not easy, but the time, the effort, the commitment of everybody that's involved in the program, believing that you have success here at Iowa State." Over the course of seven years, we know if we're willing to do the right things and align ourselves the right way, then success can occur within our football program. Iowa State uh, looks not to miss a a beat after bye week. I feel like you've seen every young guy we've got, so I don't know if this year we could go into it looking like that. Campbell said, really, our thought process was that we didn't want to miss the rhythm of the season.
2: Thanks, Patty. Let's do Dear Abby quick before we close. And it's entitled Doctor Visit is a Case of Confusion. Dear Abby, I'm a man in my 50s. A few months ago, I had a routine doctor's appointment with a new primary care physician. I intended the appointment to be a complete regular physical. I don't, thankfully, have any major physical issues that I know of, but I was always taught it is wise to have periodic physical exams in case there is a less obvious medical issue as well as get to know one's doctor. I went for the physical exam. I was not asked to undress, as I have been with all my previous doctors. The doctor seemed nice, but I found it strange that I wasn't examined physically. I find it hard to understand how a doctor could properly examine me without me undressing. The doctor should be used to seeing bodies, and I cannot understand why the doctor or staff were reluctant to ask me to undress. I found this all very confusing. Perhaps there was some miscommunication. I don't know if this is unusual, temporary, or a new normal that I haven't heard about. Next time, I should be more clear about wanting to be examined thoroughly, or should I change doctors? Signed, Covered Up in Virginia. Dear Covered Up, contact the doctor, explain that in the past you have always had a complete physical which involved you disrobing and ask why it didn't happen during your last visit. If the answer you receive is unsatisfactory, change doctors. And before we close, I will remind you that at the request of our listeners, Iris is moving the air times of some of our newspapers. The Mason City Globe Gazette and Fort Dodge Messenger have been combined into a one hour show that you will hear at noon. 1 p.m., it's the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier. At 2 p.m., you'll hear the Dubuque Telegraph Herald. Your Cedar Rapids Gazette is now on at 3 p.m. each day. At 4 p.m., it's the Sioux City Journal. At 5, you can hear the Council Bluffs' daily non parel 6 p.m. is the rebroadcast of the Des Moines Register. And 8 p.m. you'll hear this week's Iowa salute. At 9, it's Consumer News. At 10, it's the Wall Street Journal. And we wind up the day with the New York Times at 11 p.m. That brings us to the end of the Des Moines Register for today, Wednesday, October the 25th. I'm Scott Spolivik, and my partner at the microphone has been Patty Daniels. Earlier, you heard Barb DeHack and Dennis May. You can listen to IRIS programs on any computer or smart device at any time at iowaradioreading.org. Support for today's readings come from the Des Moines Register, Iowa Public Radio, Iowa PBS, and bendsoundmusic.com. Thank you for listening to IRIS. Iowa's first and only radio reading service.